I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are in the midst of a series of sermons in that block of teaching from Jesus' lips that we find in the Gospel of Matthew that is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we are simply proceeding through it sequentially uh, from one passage to the next. This morning we are in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Hear the word of God. Jesus says to his disciples, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let us pray. Father, we turn to your word. We thank you for it. We pray that you will instruct us from it and sanctify us by the truth of your word. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sermon on the Mount is a section within Matthew's Gospel, but of course within the Sermon on the Mount there are subsections, and we are in one right now that really began with uh, back in verse 17, chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Uh, Jesus was teaching. Jesus was doing various things. People were talking, wondering what was going on. Jesus was accused by the scribes and Pharisees of of not keeping the Sabbath, for instance, because he healed someone or he didn't chide his disciples when they picked some grain and ate it, those kinds of things that took place throughout his ministry. And so they raised the question, well, Jesus, what do you think about the law? Are you here to establish something different? Are you here to abolish the law? What's your relationship to the law? And so Jesus says, no, he has not come in any way to abolish the law. To be sure, he uh, lived and acted and taught contrary to some of their interpretations of the law, some of their additions to the law, which in their own minds had become equated with God's law. But Jesus never once broke any of God's laws, either in what he did or didn't do, either in what he said or didn't say. Jesus never violated God's law. He violated their expectations, their additions to the law, but he never violated the law. Furthermore, Jesus himself says he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And we looked at that passage, what that meant for the various divisions or categories of the law, the the Old Testament uh, civil law in Israel, which was completed with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 for the ceremonial law, all of the sacrifices and offerings that foreshadowed the great sacrifice that Christ himself would make and how he brought all of that to completion. He rendered those obsolete 
because he himself was the Lamb of God, the sacrifice to which they all were but a foreshadowing. And as for the moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, Jesus fulfilled those for his people. Uh, Jesus kept the Ten Commandments perfectly for you, for me, for everybody who has repented of his sin and trusted in Jesus as his Savior. And it experienced the new birth and demonstrates that by changed life. Jesus has kept the law for us. And yet, as Paul says in Romans 6, uh, we do not sin that grace may abound. We cannot take the attitude that, well, Jesus kept the law for me. Jesus died for my sin. Therefore, it really now doesn't matter how I live. Nonsense, Paul says in Romans 6. The reality is anyone who could could think that way consciously and deliberately, does not understand grace and probably has not experienced grace. Now, practically, deep down inside, I suspect more of us than than would like to admit it, are a little easier around sin because we assume God's forgiveness. But we need to be careful about that. But certainly, consciously, which should not be, Uh, our plan of action that, well, I can sin because, after all, it's God's job to forgive me. Jesus died. It doesn't matter how I live. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from what Scripture teaches, and certainly nothing could be further from the mind of someone who is uh, a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God's law, particularly as we find that the Ten Commandments, reveals God's own character It does reveal what God expects of his people, and it reveals to us the way of blessing in our own lives. The lie of sin is that you will find life, you'll find delight, you'll find joy, you'll find satisfaction in sin. That's the lie. That's the bill of goods that it it sells you. Whereas, in fact, those things are found in obedience to God's law and in saying no to sin. Sin deceives. Sin comes to you with a lie. And every time we sin, we are deceived. Every time we sin against God, we have believed the lie. Now, as Jesus goes on, as we saw last week, verse 21, he takes up a commandment. In in that case, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Now, the scribes and Pharisees approach to the law, and really more than that, I suppose it probably is simply sinful, fallen human nature's approach to the law, is to find the loopholes. The law says you shall not murder, therefore I have not slain anyone, I shed no one's blood, I'm, I'm good with God on, on this point of law, right? Well, Jesus says, well, certainly Jesus would say that the law calls for that, but it goes much deeper than that. It also involves the attitude of the heart, and therefore the words that come from our lips. To think of others with contempt, to speak of others hatefully, insulting Uh, them, putting down their intellect, putting down their character with contempt, with malice, is also a violation of the sixth commandment. And so what Jesus is saying there is that while you may not have actually committed the act of murder, and that's good, you cannot claim to have kept that point of the law unless you've also never despised someone held someone in contempt in your heart, slandered them or spoken contemptuously of them with your mouth or in your mind, in your thoughts. 
And certainly by that fuller and more biblical understanding of the law, we all stand condemned. We all stand guilty. We all stand in need of the blood of Christ on account of the sixth commandment. And, as Jesus goes on to say, on account of the seventh commandment. Verse 27, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, again, Jesus continues to teach that we can't reduce obedience to God's law down to a minimalistic, bare-bones obedience to the surface teaching of the command. And now he moves on to this commandment. As we look at this passage, I want to look at it in terms of basically three instructions. If we take what it's saying and and flip them around and put them from the negative to the positive, uh, it gives us three instructions here that we need to apply as we follow Christ. In the first place, in the first instruction that's, that's certainly implicit here, and that is to be faithful in marriage. Be faithful in marriage. Now, I'm putting it that way because that's the command. You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus, you'll note, does not take exception to the commandment. Jesus says, but I say to you, not by way of contradicting the commandment or removing the commandment, but he says, but I say to you to give a fuller explanation of the commandment and how it applies. But Jesus certainly uh, would, it would be in full agreement with the surface teaching, you shall not commit adultery. Now, I'm putting that in terms of be faithful in marriage, which is what the commandment uh, calls for there. Uh, negatively, uh, the commandment saying that, that adultery is, is out of bounds. Uh, we could certainly also expand that to say that prohibition includes any other form of sexual sin or deviancy apart from God's design of that relationship between a man and a woman, let's specify that, uh, in the bonds of marriage, which is God's design for that particular relationship to be enjoyed. So not committing adultery certainly is, is, is to obey the command, but also to engage in any other form of sexual sin is to violate the seventh commandment. Now, positively, it means that we are to shoot for and strive for in our marriages everything that God intended marriage to be, a oneness and a delight in each other spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and yes, physically within marriage. The Bible does not teach some sort of Victorian prudery. One of these days, well, maybe not, they preach on the Song of Solomon. Maybe save that for a Sunday night. Uh, the adult crowd. Um, but at any rate, if you're familiar with the book, even if you're not, it is a celebration of love uh, in all of its facets uh, within the bonds of marriage. Uh, and it's right there in the middle of the Old Testament. Um, and certainly it is God's word and worthy of being familiar with and being taught and, and being known. But negatively, uh, avoiding sexual sin of any kind, positively striving for all that God has intended within the bounds of of marriage, Uh, and yes, uh, purity, chastity outside of the marriage relationship. Um, The Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, shorter catechism, which in this instance is contained in our hymnal here, 
We've gone through the Shorter Catechism in this service, and it goes through a brief exposition of the Ten Commandments, including this one, and I think it captures it quite well. What is the Seventh Commandment? The Seventh Commandment is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. What is required in the Seventh Commandment? In other words, what positively does it call for? And note they address that first. What does the commandment positively call for from us? The seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. And so the exposition of it there in the catechism Uh, appropriately expands it to this fuller application of it that Jesus gives here in the passage before us. And so you have the negative, you have the positive, and that's important in dealing with sin of any kind. It's not just to say no to the sin, but to say yes to God's best, to say yes to God's word, which is superior, which is better, which brings blessing, which brings joy which brings wholeness. And so following Paul's principle of putting off the old man, putting on the new man as we would shed one filthy garment to put on a clean garment, uh, we, we don't simply pronounce a negative. We also have to set before us a vision of something much better, uh, of a positive that we are to strive for and not just what we are to uh, be on guard against. And so Jesus has no problem with the commandment. But Jesus does have a problem with reducing the commandment to the bare act of physical adultery and saying, well, if I've done that, God must be pleased with me. I've kept the command. Because there's much more to it, as Jesus goes on to say. So be faithful in marriage, uh, or another way to put it, be sexually pure. Uh, But then the second, in verse 28, the second instruction that this passage gives us is to be pure in heart be pure in heart. Verse 28, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I think Jesus' qualification there is very important. Jesus is not saying anybody who looks at a woman has sinned. Jesus is not saying any any man who happens to notice that a woman is attractive has sinned. What Jesus is saying here is that a natural, God-given aspect, particularly here of men, to be oriented visually like everything else has been twisted and perverted by the fall. He is not saying, Jesus is not saying that a God-given notice for feminine beauty or attraction to feminine beauty is itself sin. What he is saying here is that when a man looks at a woman and goes beyond that, some have said the sin of the second glance, uh, I think the ESV renders it here well, with lustful intent which again takes it to what's going on in the heart, what's going on in the mind, and not just the action, is then sinning against God. You see that desire 
uh, that inclination has been perverted by the fall. And you certainly don't need me to tell you that in our culture, and our culture, by the way, is not unique in this today or through the ages, has taken that attraction, has taken that desire, and made an idol of it, blown it all out of proportion, exaggerated, exaggerated it, and replaced God with it, made it an idol, an obsession, a crutch, an addiction, a refuge. And our culture only encourages this in all kinds of ways. And you know what happens possibly by experience, certainly through biblical wisdom or the testimony of others. Nothing, no idol, regardless of what it is, can bear the weight of our placing the burden of our existence upon it. And so here, as with any idol, if you place upon it the weight that only Christ himself can bear you will find that it doesn't hold that weight and you will become disillusioned. You will perhaps, far carried far enough, fall into despair. You will find that the most promiscuous of people are not the happiest of people. They are not the most joyful of people. Because they are looking to something else besides the Lord God himself to satisfy what only the Lord God himself can satisfy. We were created to know God. We are separated from him by our sins. Christ alone can rebuild that relationship, can bridge that gap. And so whatever the idol might be, whether it's recreation or money or sexual sin, or whatever it might be, will ultimately and inevitably fall short of bringing about that happiness, that satisfaction, of filling that emptiness uh, that we all have in our hearts apart from Christ. And so a good desire can become destructive. There's a couple of analogies I think are helpful in thinking about this. One is that of a river that has uh, flooded over its banks that has gone beyond its boundaries. The, the channel has now spread out, and instead of it being a thing of beauty and usefulness, it has become a thing of destruction as the waters flow out. Uh, another simple analogy is that of the fire in the fireplace. Uh, the, the fire belongs in the fireplace. The fire in the fireplace is a good and useful and beautiful thing. But when the fire makes its way outside of the fireplace, then it becomes harmful, destructive, and even deadly. And both, I think, are fitting analogies. We're talking about a God-given desire that due to our sinfulness uh, has run amok. Our imagination uh, allows us to go places where we ought not to go. Now, we need to notice what Jesus is saying here. Is Jesus saying that lust is as bad as adultery? Well, he does say it is adultery. It's committing adultery with someone in your heart. But I don't think Jesus would argue, and I certainly don't think Scripture argues, and the two never are in conflict, by the way, that that the one is as bad as the other. As we saw with last week with hatred or contempt in the heart versus actual murder, they're both violations of the sixth commandment. But I think no one, certainly Scripture, no one in his right mind would argue that to, to hold someone in contempt and to actually is as bad as to actually go out and murder that person because of the 
heinousness of the sin itself because of the the effect that it would have not only on the person killed, but on their family and others who know them and love them, on you, on your family, the implications are huge. Well, so it is here. Lust, in terms of, of, of sin, we could say is not as bad as actual act of adultery. Again, because it's not as heinous a sin itself, and the effects it might have, uh, while it does have effects, it's not a victimless crime, we might say, uh, are certainly not as bad as the actual act of adultery. However, what Jesus is saying here to those who are smug in their obedience to God's law is that it's not merely the outward action. It's the attitude of the heart. It's the thoughts going on behind the eyes that can also be a violation of the seventh commandment. And so what Jesus is saying here to them is, hold on, not so fast. You think so highly of yourself. You think you have obeyed God's law. But if you thought about it this way, then in God's eyes, from God's point of view, it's not just the outward action, but it's the heart. It's the mind. It's the thoughts that are going on that are themselves a violation. Uh, The other problem, of course, that Jesus is teaching here when he connects the two is that lust uh, is at the root of adultery, just as, as hatred is at the root of murder. We need to avoid this minimalist attitude that say, well, as long as I don't commit adultery, it really doesn't matter what I do. Wrong. That's to minimize it. Um, The danger is, of course, that uh, what is at one point unthinkable becomes thinkable, and therefore what was once undoable becomes doable. We read in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that in the spring of the year, at that time when the kings would go forth to war, After being in winter quarters, uh, the armies of Israel went out, uh, led them forth uh, into their expeditions, into their battles. But, you know, King David wasn't with them. King David stayed home, and he was relaxing on his couch, and then he got up and walked around, around on the roof, and he happens to see, as he gazes over into another courtyard, a beautiful young woman bathing. Now, Two things could have happened at that point. David could have said, whoa, and averted his eyes and walked back in. But that's not what happened. David started to think about it. The more he thought about it, he thought, well, you know, she really is quite attractive. This, is, this could be something interesting. And he sent to find out who she was, and she, he sent to have her brought to the palace. And David's reign never fully recovered The kingdom was never quite right after that. What happened? Well, David entertained the thought. He entertained it perhaps a second time. The thought ran away with him. His imagination took off with him. And his own sinful nature carried him away. And things went on from there. A series of deliberate choices were made. It didn't just happen. David made a decision at any number of points along the way. And we read at the end of the chapter, but the thing after he had had the woman's husband, Uriah, killed, put him up in the front of the battle where he'd be sure to be killed, it said at the end of the chapter, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then Second Samuel chapter 12 is when Nathan, the prophet, comes and confronts David about what he had done. So not only is it wrong in itself, not only are you violating the command of God itself, but it also is the, uh, 
as, as the seed is to the fruit. It also has the potential of going much farther. So be careful what you think. Discipline your mind. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. John Stott puts it this way, deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame and the inflaming of the imagination by the indiscipline of the eyes. Well, there's a third instruction here, of course, being faithful in marriage, of course, cultivating purity in the heart, watching the heart, because it too is concerned with this commandment. And then the last thing Jesus says, and really it's, it's the bulk of the, the paragraph, although we won't spend as much time on it, and that is to be zealous in effort, to be zealous in effort. Now, Jesus uses this, this same analogy of cutting off the hand, plucking the eyes out in Matthew 18, also dealing with other kinds of sin, sin generally considered. Jesus is using these, this teaching to enforce the seriousness of what he's talking about. Now, if your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Now, if there's anything we know, it's not, it's that Jesus is not speaking literally here. Jesus is not saying you need to somehow mutilate your body in addressing this. Uh, the, the early church father, Origen, in the third century, took this literally, only it wasn't his eye and it wasn't his hand that he cut off. The Council of Nicaea in 325 uh, forbid, forbade the making of such uh, such eunuchs as Origen became. However, uh, certainly he took it seriously, but he took it wrongly, because that's really beside the point. Jesus has been talking about the heart. Unless you cut your heart out, you're not really addressing the root of the problem. What Jesus is saying here by way of hyperbole, by speaking in a way that's designed to get your attention, is this is serious. You need to take whatever measures you have to, to deal with sin in your life, whatever sin is in your life, but certainly here dealing with sin of a sexual nature. Well, how do we do that? Well, Job's commitment in, in Job 31.1 is, is worth emulating. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How shall I then gaze on a young woman? Well, you need to make a covenant with your eyes. We learn this, of course, very Early on, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? We've, we've learned that song, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. But we forget that. Profound truth, simple little song, but a profound truth. By contrast, Second Peter 2.14 tells us the false teachers have eyes full of adultery insatiable for sin. Let it not be so with you. Gentlemen, we need to make a covenant with our eyes that we will be careful what we set before our eyes, that we will be careful where we allow our eyes to go. And this applies in all sorts of ways. It applies to real people. It applies to virtual people. We need to do whatever it takes. Pluck out the eye, cut off the hand, remove opportunity for sin, uh, it means being accountable, to have people willing to ask you hard questions and after you answer, to look you in the eye and say, are you lying to me? Because people will lie about this as quickly as they will lie about everything. Now, gentlemen, I've been speaking to you somewhat 
Uh, someone once said, lust in men is to want, lust in women is to be wanted. And I think there may be uh, some truth in that. Uh, and so ladies, I like, what, again, what John Stott says. He writes, I would be silly to legislate about fashions, but wise, I think, to make this distinction. It is one thing to make yourself attractive. It is another to make yourself deliberately seductive. You girls know the difference. So do we men. Uh, Paul is to the point, as one translation renders it, 1 Timothy 2.9, I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing. And by the way, modest and attractive are not mutually exclusive, but you know the line, and certainly men do too. And so while Jesus is speaking to men here, uh, you who are sisters in Christ uh, need to help, need to be careful about what you are communicating uh, with the clothing that you wear. Well, what's at stake? Jesus says it's better to lose one part of your, me- of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You know, if, and I've used this idea before, and I think about this sometimes. If you knew that we really were saved by works, if it was not the works of Christ given to us by grace, but if you and I were saved by works, would we be more careful how we lived? If you knew that the next sin would cast you into hell, would you be more careful? Are you presuming on grace? Jesus is not saying here that anyone who has committed a sin in this area is going to hell. Christ died for those sins if you are in Christ. But what he is saying is that the person who has no concern about this, the person who is quite at home living in this realm of sin, is bound for hell. How can anyone who is covered by the blood of Christ, who is united to Christ by the Holy Spirit, be unconcerned about obedience to God in this area. One writer says, I am painfully aware of how sin ensnares and entangles and produces pathetic victims, but the victims are not passive victims. In Jesus' teaching, sin leads to hell, and that's ultimately the reason why sin must be taken seriously. Well, God's grace is greater than all of our sin, including sexual sin. And there's absolutely no doubt that this is a major battlefield in Christian living today. It always has been, but let's just say that the avenues and the technology make it more invasive and more available and more insidious than ever. Satan loves to wreak havoc in this area. Our own hearts, fallen and sinful as they are, apart from Christ, and that residual fallen nature, even in in Christ, likes to, to wreak havoc and make a mess in this area. But dear friend, we don't make an idol out of sexual purity. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. Christ's blood can cleanse even the deepest and darkest stains of sin. His grace can heal even the most traumatized conscience. We do need to pray that God would give us a great sensitivity in this area because our culture desensitizes us. But we also need to recognize that where God has forgiven, where God has cleansed, we should and we can too. And so in closing, it seems to me that there's two main strategies that flow out of what Jesus is saying here. First, keep out the bad stuff. 
whether it's computer, television, books, <laughs> newspaper ads, whatever, billboards, it doesn't matter. It comes from all over. We need to guard our eyes. Our eyes are a major input into what's in our brain. We need to be careful what we allow into the mind because that begins to shape how we think, which begins to shape how we act. So keep out the bad stuff and let in, bring in the, the good stuff. The things that our brains, our minds need to be fed. You see, our minds run in the tracks that we lay for them. And so first and foremost, saturate your mind with the Word of God. Read the Scriptures. Memorize the Scriptures. Meditate on the Scriptures. Begin to program your mind in that way and not the other. You see, Paul's prescription, I think, applies from, first, from uh, Philippians Chapter 4, verse 8, when he said, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word which really does address us and speak to us where we are. Lord, we know that the things of which Jesus spoke here, the things of which Scripture addresses in in all kinds of places, is nothing new, that these kinds of sins have been around for a very, very long time. And Lord, we struggle in our own day with our own fallen nature, with this world in which we live, with how it has twisted and perverted uh, your good gift. But, Father, we pray that by your grace we would be restored more and more into the likeness of Christ, into the pattern we find in your word. Lord God, give us healthy, strong marriages, Lord, in singleness. We pray for grace, for purity and obedience and chastity. And, Father, we pray that in this impure and debased and debauched world in which we live, you would give us the grace not only to be pure in our behavior, but pure in our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen.